Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the show. I've got uh, kind of a single-topic show tonight, which is uh, fairly rare for this program. For all those of you listening, I'll be taking a very close look at modern feminism, also known as third-wave third wave feminism, and how it is uh, a disaster and, and, frankly, quite dangerous uh, for women, for, for humans. Uh, been a long time coming since I've come to this point of view, and uh, I didn't do the show last week because I just... I realized I wasn't prepared enough. I'm pretty confident I'm prepared enough to talk intelligently with sources and whatnot uh, about the subject tonight, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to that, I just, uh, you know, it's uh, this started, ClickBang started as a show about vaping, culture, technology, politics, and um, it's much less about that uh, these days, as evidenced by tonight's show, where that will be 0% of the subject matter. One thing that I do like talking about quite a bit is adventures in cooking, whether it be seafood or my latest obsession with my two crockpots or what have you. And I'll tell you what, sometimes I ask for some audience participation or feedback on shows. I, actually, quite often I do. In that vein, last week when I talked about my crockpot and how I was just getting into it, or I guess it was a couple weeks ago, I asked for recipes from... The audience and I received more feedback than perhaps well not than any other topic but one of the most one of the, I got a deluge of recipes uh, which is exactly what I asked for thank you so much I have uh, no less than 50 different recipes that were either emailed to me messaged to me uh, Facebook commented to me uh, I'm so thank I, I've got more recipes than I could possibly make in a year at this point. So thank you so much. Um, I wouldn't discourage you from sending more, but I, now I've just got a problem of what to choose next. Uh, I've been having so much fun with this crockpot. It is uh, it's been a great joy, and uh, some of those recipes of the, that I've made so far have come from you, and I thank you so much for that. It has really uh, contributed to my enjoyment on this form of cooking that I guess is much more well known than I previously assumed. So thanks. Um, so far, my most, my, my, my favorite recipe so far has been just a, a very simple pulled pork recipe where there's not much to it, really. Uh, get an onion, chop it up, put it on the bottom of the crock pot, put a pork shoulder on top, and then pour in a, a few tablespoons of uh, Worcestershire sauce and uh, two cans of Dr. Pepper. Uh, eight hours later, you shred it and you know, put it back in for another hour. So pretty, pretty simple uh, execution. And it just came out so well. I actually decided just on the spot, like I was so impressed with how well it came out. I just, I, I went to the store and I bought some buns and went down to the, to the bar I hang out with a lot. I asked them, I said, hey, can I set up here with my crock pot and just serve these things? And they said, sure. I happened to do it um, a couple of Wednesdays ago, which... Uh, or Tuesdays ago, or whatever it was. Yeah, it must have been a couple of Tuesdays ago. On what the, the, the bar said was the slowest night in well over 12 months. You know, it was, it was it was one of the first really cold days. We've been, you know, finally having some pretty brutal weather here in New York. Not so much in terms of uh, preci precipitation, but certainly temperature. And it was bad, and hardly anyone showed up. But those who did show up... Uh, some bought one, but most bought two or four sandwiches. So I was able to actually pay for 
all this all the stuff that was required um i probably didn't turn a profit but it, uh, i i definitely uh i broke even on it which i was and certainly and i had some to spare i'll be doing it again so if you are in new york city and you want some delicious pulled pork sliders uh, i charge five bucks a piece or two for eight and that will be this coming thursday well that'll be tomorrow thursday january 21st at the parkside lounge i'll be set up by eight o'clock so if you want a slider come on down uh i guess i'll yeah if, if you're listening to this and you and, and you come in for a slider uh, I'll, I'll give you a discount <laughs> it's good shit thank you so much for all the recipes guys i really really appreciate it okay that being said let's talk about modern feminism let's start the show My uh, my position is that the current state of feminism, whether you want to call it modern feminism or third wave feminism or intersectional, whatever label you want to put on it, um, the type of feminism that is being uh, practiced most, certainly most loudly these days, and certainly what gets the most attention, is extremely dangerous. Um, probably. You know, in the title of the show, I say, you know, dangerous to women, and that's definitely true in my opinion. Uh, is it is it more dangerous to men? I, I don't know. I think it's pretty close, actually. No, actually, I'd say it's more dangerous to women, quite frankly. Um, it's been a long time coming for me to come to the to the position that, that I'm at now. And, for, you know, to, to be fair, uh, feminism has changed quite a bit since I was made first aware of it, which was uh, in the... In university when I was uh, in college, which was from uh, 1995 to 1998, and a year of graduate school in 99. Not only was has my view on feminism changed, uh, before um, my my views on just politics in general have changed quite significantly while I was uh, at university. When I got uh, to college, I was already uh, very. Uh, very, very, I identified very strongly as being a liberal. I always had some sort of uh, sense of purpose that we should use the the political system that we have here uh, to affect for, for for change, for good change, to uh, to help people. Uh, it was definitely coming from the 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 right part, the right place in in, in my heart, and that's why when when I see um, socialists, uh, liberals, whatever you know, progressives. Uh, I, I still always listen. 
Um, I, I don't think that there's any political theory that um, is expressly not worth listening to. Uh, just because I've changed so much over the past 20 years, I've done a complete 180. Um, and I can remember, uh, you know, I, with regard to moving from uh, being a, a rabid liberal, um, yeah, no, and it's you know it's even unnecessary to use that um, that adjective. Uh, just from being a liberal, uh, probably a, more accurately a socialist. I um, I was a liberal when I got to college and was exposed to some theories of, of Marxism, socialism, democratic socialism. Um, I thought they were all very fine ideas, and I, I it is a, a flashbulb moment. I do remember the day when that all changed for me, and that's when I uh, met a. The guy, I don't remember his last name. His name was Daniel. And um, he uh, introduced me to some of uh, Ayn Rand's theories. Um, and while there are certainly problems with objectivism and certainly, certainly you know, double certainly, many problems with the way that uh, Miss Rand lived her life, um, her study on metaphysics and epistemology uh, we're groundbreaking, still are groundbreaking today, and I believe she nailed it. Um, once you get into ethics and aesthetics, I think she made some mistakes, but the core, which is metaphysics and epistemology, I think uh, she has made more progress for philosophy than has been made in the last 6,000 years. Um, anyway, uh, this was an awakening for me, which led me to uh, libertarianism and then since um, anacro-capitalism. Uh, that's those are perhaps uh, topics for a, a different day or you know several different days. I talk about that stuff pretty pretty regularly, but um, tied into that uh, certainly is feminism for me because when I did uh, discover you know move when when I didn't have any really strong feelings about it moving out of high school, but um, Feminism is, uh, or was at least at the time and still is, I believe, uh, inexorably intertwined with the left, at least the feminism that is, or that was, uh, preached most loudly um, on, a, on a college campus. I, I don't think that's changed much, although feminism has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. But at the time, it was inexorably tied to the left. There were no real voices on the right that were accessible. Um, so... Uh, I learned about it in that context. And even as I did um, drastically and quickly move away uh, from socialism uh, to theories that more embrace the free market, um, I didn't abandon uh, my thoughts on feminism, not then and not for many, many years since, really. I did believe very strongly, in fact, uh, that it, it, was a, it was a good and very noble uh, a very good and noble result to seek equality for men and women. And, you know, my heart was, and I believe still is in the right place. I still believe that equality is a good thing. Um, I was just a little bit misinformed, I suppose, at the time. Um, you just, you know, when you, when you're with people, you know, even, even when that theory that those theories of, of politics change for me, um, my heart was still in the same place. I still believed that that politics and uh, and participation in the political process was the right way or one of the best ways to go about 
uh, affecting change towards the goal of equality. I just didn't notice at the time that that wasn't really the goal, even back then uh, for feminists, though I believe that there was some, there was certainly work to do. There was. Um, there has been so much that has changed, I wouldn't even say in the, in, the, in the last decade, in the last half decade, so much has changed on the subject. And I believe it, uh, the changes which you know many would refer to as third wave feminism have been uh, disastrous. And, and that really is mostly in the last half decade. But I suppose we can back up a little bit. Um, you know, it was, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the university that I attended was um, the State University of New, of New York at Binghamton. Uh, one of the, I, I, I don't know how she would characterize herself as either first or second wave. It doesn't really matter. She's kind of a, a thing onto herself, a lot of her theories at least was uh, someone who also graduated uh, Binghamton uh, when it was still called Harper College, a feminist by the name of Camille Paglia. Uh, I noticed at the time, though I was, I was interested in feminism fairly casually, I certainly supported this notion of having equality, um, though I per perhaps, like I said, misunderstood the true motives of the of most of the people who were involved. I still, you know, I I I enjoyed reading about it casually. So naturally, one of the authors that I found first was uh, Miss Palia, being that she was a a graduate of the university I was at. Her books were readily available, and universally hated. Almost, I found out very quickly after you know you know I. Wouldn't go to any. I, I was at the some of the, uh, the the meetings that were towards the end of socialism and, and that kind of thing. And feminist issues were certainly brought up. Uh, I learned not to say her name again. She was not liked at all, and I didn't. I didn't really care because I enjoyed reading Palia, and uh, I didn't care enough to really d dive too much more into it. That was. That was my interest in it. I read some Steinem and things like that, but I, I, I wasn't deeply, uh, I was more uh, concerned in learning more about the political system, polit political theory, than I really was about fem feminism, but I enjoyed Paglia very much. Uh, she is definitely, was and still is definitely on the left, but she has just a, a, a fierce streak, not as a libertarian per se, but uh, certainly as a libertine that I enjoyed very much. A lot of the topics that at the time she embraced, such as uh, the decriminalization of prostitution, uh, of pornography, those kind of things, at that time, feminism was at a very different point than, than it is now. I even remember after college, when I got my first job in New York City, and I had time to roam around the village when I got out of work, which I, which, which I certainly did as, as often as I could. It was just fantastic. I remember stumbling upon, on more than one occasion, uh, they had these uh, women's rights groups set up and collecting petitions. And mind you, this is in 1999 or 2000. Uh, these, uh, the, these places where they, were, they would set up and collect signatures for petitions to ban pornography. And I said, 
you know, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to restrict the right of women to work for themselves in a way that is, you know, much safer than prostitution? Well, they were against both. Uh, this, uh, I, I believe a lot, you know, mo most of, I, I think, third wave feminism at this point embraces it. But that just illustrates how fast these things change. That was only 15 years ago. So these things do change very quickly. Another thing that's changed uh, very, very quickly has been the role of trans uh, transgendered men and women in the feminist movement. They were, as recently as 10 or maybe 7 or 8 years ago even, completely shunned from the movement. Now they are they're embraced and per per perhaps on one of the highest pedestals offered by this I don't know this this marketplace where greed where I'm sorry where uh, where guilt is a commodity I, I they've got some chips they've got chirping chips why does all this change why does it change so quickly what well, it, well it's okay it's okay that it does like I said um I'm never really one to to condemn an idea based on who it's coming from because I've been through just about everything myself. So I'll listen to anyone. I really, you know, I, I, I will. I, just because someone is coming from the left, like Palia, for example, it doesn't mean I'm not going to listen to her because she's a smart lady with uh, interesting things to say. And that can come from anyone, from the far right, from the far left. It, I, I don't really care. I, I just want to hear the ideas. And I think that might be the crux well, or, or one of the most important criticisms I have on modern feminism is that listening is simply not allowed. Um, I can find no greater attack or no greater threat to free speech in this country than feminism and then uh, as a distant second only because it's a small part of the population, Islam. I uh, and and if you really look at those two ideologies, while one is a real religion and one is, uh, I don't know. Some people probably would call feminism a, a religion. I would call it an industry. Really, at this point, um, they're they're not too different, at least on the way that they look at speech. Uh, Islam would probably uh, would would have to be considered more uh, more radical or more more drastic in that uh, you can't even draw a picture. Uh, you draw a picture of the Prophet Muhammad, or the, the you know they they believe he was a prophet. I believe he's a pedophile, but uh, if you draw a picture of him, then you run the risk of being killed. I don't think feminists are willing to take it to that extreme yet, but they are they certainly share the zeal to stifle speech. Um, and of all places, where do they start this? Well, on college campuses. And this really is a sad thing. Uh, the college campus in this country from the 19, probably late 50s, certainly the 1960s on for decades after that was, that was the place to go to hear free speech where you had the best chance of having your voice, your opinion heard. It was a college campus. It was the bastion of free speech. Fast forward to today, and probably the most, it's changed the most probably in the last five years. 
It's the worst place to go today if you want free speech, if you want to listen. And my perspective really is, you know, I don't go to college campuses, but I certainly, especially if it's a, a public university, I certainly want there to be an equal opportunity for all voices to be heard, no matter how much you disagree with them. The way I look at it is that if the speech is offended, please don't take away my right to be offended. By shutting down these events uh, because you disagree with an idea, and in some cases I really don't think they do disagree, I just think since, well, they do, but more so in that it completely, if you don't buy the whole thing, if you don't swallow the whole blue pill, then it is worthless and subject to attack. Uh, this has been happening with alarming frequency on college campuses and outside to a smaller degree, but that's what's coming. Obviously, that's what's next. Um, they have almost but all control over any, certainly any public and, and several private institutions as well, to the point where public spaces are shut down, where free speech is not allowed. If you do not agree with every point that they have to offer, you are not welcome, and they will physically shut down these events. This is happening again and again. I'd like to go through some examples with you. Um, and then what I'm going to do after that is uh, go through some of the things that feminists or modern-day feminists use to justify uh, these kinds of actions, starting with the idea of male patriarchy and male um, male privilege, uh, specifically white male privilege. So let's start. I have some uh, I have some sound clips for you from some uh, recent uh, some recent protests. Now these were these were events that were. Run, that were done by uh, groups that the the, the feminists that were pr uh, protesting them characterized as male rights act or MRA uh, lectures or, or events, male rights activists. Now, um, I don't identify as a male rights activist any more than I uh, identify as a feminist. I don't really identify as either. Um, but it would be really short-sighted not to concede that there are problems that both sexes face. Um, I believe, I don't know, that these issues don't necessarily need to be com uh, compartmentalized into feminism or MRA or, or whatever labels you want to put on it. I think humans have problems, and some of those problems are common to both sexes. Some of them are different. So when there's a problem, just look at it as, 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 a, as a human problem. That, that's just my opinion. But that's not to say that there aren't some arguments that both sides are bringing up that are, are useful. I just don't think that compartmentalizing them into feminism or menism or MRA or however whatever label you want to put, I just don't see it being particularly useful. Um, I don't necessarily identify as a humanist either. I just, listen, there's problems for both sexes. Just when they come up, deal with them. Um, one such group that to the best of my knowledge, um, when looking at it, are, is this um, this group in Canada called uh, uh, a Cafe, I believe it is. What does it stand for? Gosh, I forget. Uh, 
I'll, I'll look it up while I play some of these videos. But this is a, an organization that does provide services for both men and women to and and families uh, for help with problems. So they, you know, they don't identify as a men's rights group. They, I think, more identify as a family help group. But since they do offer services for men who have problems or have, or have the, the the victims of of, of abuse or, or what what have you. It certainly does not uh, fall into the the scope and the perspective and and the and the, and the goals of of modern feminism. So they're labeled as MRA, you know, men's rights activist. When I, I, to the best of of what I could find, they, they clearly are not. Let's listen to what happened at uh, this uh, this meeting that took place. I think it was a year or so ago. When this cafe group spoke or attempted to speak uh, in Canada, to uh, they offer various kinds of workshops and support services. So this is this is a new thing in Canada. Volume warning. Lots and lots of services which are focused on women. So now sometimes. You get the idea, right? Sometimes what they do is they try to like make a human wall around these events so that nobody can get in. Um, in this one, I don't think they were successful on that, so they just showed up with a bunch of noisemakers. They, you know, there's all kinds of people here who want to listen—men, women, uh, other university staff. They just they want to hear what these people have to say. Um, this is what they do to prevent that. Eventually, uh, I believe their noisemakers were taken away. We want to be action-oriented. We want to make a difference. We want to be involved with public education. And in the public education side, we'll have events like this regularly. We have four planned for this year. This is the first. Um, the next one will be... Here's an opportunity where you can listen and you can engage with these people. You can say that you can listen, and then afterwards, uh, the, the, uh, this group is, is more than willing to uh, to talk and to, and to exchange exchange ideas and exchange and debate. And that's kind of what free speech is all about. Um, this is not acceptable uh, to these radical feminists or just third whatever you want to call them, modern feminists. It's not acceptable. Uh, the ideas to them are so repugnant that no one should be able to hear them. Again, what about my right to listen? And what about my right to be offended or to disagree? Taking it away from me. How is that fair? How is that free speech? It's not. Here's another. Um, now, this uh, this was for a... Uh, there's a, there's a, a gentleman who... Uh, he uh, considers himself a humanist, but that has changed recently. Uh, his name is uh, Warren Farrell. Uh, he was a, uh, it's kind of interesting. 
He was uh, three times elected to the board of directors for now, which was an, uh, the which is the is or was I don't know if they're still around. I'm I'm sure they are. The National Organization for Women. This was uh, he was certainly a, a, a leading part of this movement in the 70s. You know, three times elected to the board of of directors. You know, he was clearly a feminist. Um, he noticed that while great strides were made um, by the feminist movement in the 1970s, uh, there were new issues popping up uh, for men and boys, and he became uh, concerned about these issues and started to speak out about them. He was uh, excommunicated and now is, is, is vilified. You can read a little bit more about him here. Very interesting guy. That's his Wikipedia page, and there's uh, tons of other sources. By the way, if you're listening, uh, I should have mentioned this earlier, if you're listening via the replay, the replay notes will be unusually jam-packed with links and references for this episode. Uh, so be sure to uh, to check out that section. Lots of video, lots of articles, lots of stuff. So uh, here's, you know, this... Listen to what happened when he was trying to speak at a university. So that, um, this I find, um, particularly ironic. Obviously, that's a fire alarm that they pulled because, uh, you know, they, they, they were not able to physically bar, they initially were able to physically bar people, but eventually uh, the campus police um, removed them so that people could actually go in and uh, listen to what he was talking about, which uh, was most, one of the main topics was why do, males commit suicide so much more regularly than uh, than women. That was a focal point of this particular lecture. Um, they were unable to do it, to physically uh, stand in front and prevent people from going in. So what did they do? They pulled a fire alarm. I find this uh, to be particularly ironic because I don't know if they, if they realized this when they were doing it, but we always say, you know, you have free speech, but one thing you can't do is is scream is scream fire in a crowded theater and that is exactly what they did i i mean explicitly they literally pulled a fire alarm at a lecture hall a lecture hall which is essentially a theater um this is dangerous this is a dangerous thing to do and obviously the fire department has to be called out everyone there so obviously it was successful everyone's got to be cleared out the fire department has to come in um this is a dangerous thing and it is it, it, it exemplifies the one thing that you can't do you cannot scream fire in a crowded theater and there can be no more there can be no more realistic way of doing it than pulling a firearm i just thought that was i thought that was pretty interesting um You know, I have another clip. Where did I put it? It was just, oh, maybe I didn't name it. Shit. Stand by one second. Because uh, I did have some really good clips of some people who just were who were there and just kind of wanted to, uh, to hear what was being said. Hold on, I didn't name it, so I'm going to have to go through a couple of these. Sorry, guys. 
Yeah. These are just people who are out outside and trying to discourage people from coming in. How do you sleep at night, man? So, so you believe it's hate speech, right? It is hate speech. I've never heard of him before. I don't even know what he's talking. Okay, I've never heard of him before. We, we invite you to educate I just yourself. Want, yeah, so I just wanted to listen to him. I just wanted to see what this guy is and what he's talking about. But now I can't get in. You should be fucking ashamed of yourself. You're fucking scum. You are fucking scum. Fucking. These are not to the speakers, mind you. These are just to people who wanted to go there to listen to what this guy had to say. Because they wanted to go and listen, they are rapists, they are scum, they are, well, listen. Brave apologists, incest supporting, woman hating, fucking scum. Fucking scum. Yeah, just another. I just want to listen to someone else's opinion. I'm not even on a side here. I just listen to as many people as I can. You know what, though? Why would you pay money to fucking support a fucking rape apologist if you weren't fucking one? Well, it's fucking scum. Yeah, you should be fucking proud of yourself. These are the fucking men that are gonna rape your sisters and women in your life. You be fucking ashamed. Just talking about an idea that you don't agree with. You're a rapist. Very frustrated. I was studying all today, and I took time out of my studies to come here. Would you like to ask him why he's here? I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sufficiently convinced that I'll receive an answer that isn't what I presented. Two of my friends committed suicide, and I want the peace of understanding why that happened. Wow. When when did it happen? It happened about two years ago. It was one after the other, like that. Did you expect to get some addressing of suicide issue at the talk here? Yes, I did. What I have to ask on that, and I'll ask you, is why this space to talk about that? There, like Feminism, for example, offers lots of spaces to talk about mental health issues, talk about depression, both in men, women, and people who don't identify within the binary. So, it, uh, the, it's, it's a preposterous argument. You can talk about these issues, sure, but you have to do it in our space. So if you want to talk about why men are committing suicide more than women, come to a feminist organ, come to a feminist uh, session or something like that. Why can't people decide for themselves where and when they want to talk about something? I think everybody's voice should be uh, heard. I wondered why the security was uh, trying to keep me back, and I think it's for my own safety. Yes, you're right, because it did turn violent. It was just somebody who wanted to talk. Now, let's, I mean, if you take it, obviously, uh, let's take this to the nuclear option, right? What if it was a Holocaust denier or Aryan, Aryan rights or the KKK wanted to speak somewhere? I, I certainly feel that there is really, uh, I said at the beginning, there's always something to be heard by listening. I don't think there's anything really to be learned from any of, the, any of those fucking wackos. But the First Amendment protects all. 
everyone has the right to speak and share their ideas as long as they are not they are not inciting to immediate violence or anything like that everyone the first the, the first amendment only works when it is i guess universally inclusive everyone has a right to speak everyone has a right to be heard and if you don't want to hear it just don't go there some of the um Interesting ways that radical feminism has uh, has dealt with, you know, because, you know, people obviously are going to want to speak that they disagree with. So what do they do? It's hard to make this up. But I will read. This is, uh, let's see. Safe spaces. Um this is from uh, this is an article from the New York Times called "In College and Hiding from Scary Ideas." You can read the article here. I'm going to read you an excerpt from it about these safe spaces that are being created. This one is being, is describing a safe space on a on a I believe this is Brown University. The safe space, Ms. Bryan explained, was intended to give people who might find comments trouble, troubling or triggering a place to recuperate. The room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and a video of frolicking puppies, as well as students and staff members trained to deal with trauma. Emma Hall, a junior rape survivor and sexual assault peer educator who helped set up the room and worked in it during the debate, estimates that a couple of dozen people actually used it. At one point, she went to the lecture hall. It was packed. But after a while, she had to return to the safe space. I was feeling bombarded by a lot of viewpoints that really go that really go against my dearly and closely held beliefs. Miss Hall said, um, "Is this kind of space? I mean, can you Play-Doh, pillows, videos of puppies playing? I can't think of something more infantilizing. Is this?" Is this how we want to teach college students how to deal with ideas that are different to yours? I would say it's treating treating them like toddlers, but I don't know. I think that would be somewhat disrespectful to toddlers. At least they're adventurous to go down a slide for the first time. So this is all, you know, this is all stuff that you're not going to see on a daily basis. No, you, you won't for a little while. Um, you certainly see it rampant on college campuses. You see it rampant on social media. You probably don't encounter it on in, a, in, a, in your day-to-day life. Like I live in New York City, one of the most liberal cities from a political perspective. And I don't run into these people. I don't run into to feminists very often. Hardly ever, really. I don't know if it's I, I don't I just don't think it's a popular thing in New York, which again, given the political leaning, I don't you would think it was one of the most popular it, it would be a, a city where you find it so often, but I hardly see it. I don't know what it I don't know why. I just I kind of think that I don't know, there's just too much people have too much to do than to be concerned with this nonsense in New York. But it does manifest itself in many ways in uh in in the workplace 
I think is where you're seeing seeing it quite a bit these days. So let's take a look at the concept of male privilege, which is one of the tenets, one of the one of the things that feminists use to justify what they're doing. So I decided to take a look into male privilege to see, you know, does this actually exist? Well, I suppose we can start with something that we all contribute to, which would be Social Security. We all have to pay for it, right? Now, um, men certainly pay more into the system than women. Um, actually, men contribute 18.6% more than women, um, but uh, women receive 26 more than men. So I don't believe there's really any privilege there for men. They're contributing almost 20% more and getting 2.6% less. What about Medicare? That's something else we all have to go into. Um, male um, per year are taxed 1000 about $1,500 per year to Medicare. Uh, women, about $933. Uh, females receive 58.5% more. So, so men are spending 26% more into Medicare, but women are getting 58%, almost 59% more from the benefits. Now, this... Uh, used to be, you know, insurance premiums could be adjusted uh, to account for the fact that women uh, get more money from Medicare, but no longer Obamacare forces the amount of insurance premiums to be the same for men and women. So thanks, Obama. That I'm sure I'm sure there won't be any problems with that. But what about people who are homeless? Seventy-five percent of homeless people are men. Twenty-five percent are women. Can't find the male privilege there. What about homicide? Men are victims of uh, are of homicide 78% of the time. Women, 22% of the time. Certainly no male advantage there. What about death, uh, d dying uh, in the armed services? Army, Navy, what have you. 85% of the deaths, I'm sorry, 85% um, of the armed forces is male and 15% of the armed forces is female. What about the deaths? 97% are men, 3% are women. Um, what about registering for the draft? Well, we all know that number. It's required for 100% of men and 0% of women. I certainly can't find any male privilege in the armed services. Suicide, 79% male, 21% female. What about prison? When you're talking about the same, obviously there's more men, men in prison than women, but when you're looking more specifically, and that is the same offense, the same offense level, in the same court, men receive 63% longer sentences. So in controlling for all other things, a specific crime of a specific degree in a specific court a man and a woman have committed the same exact offense in the same exact court. Men will get 63% longer sentences. Doesn't seem like there's any male privilege in the justice system. Women, in fact, are two times as likely to avoid incarceration outright if convicted of a crime than men. Two times as likely to avoid it. 
the death penalty? Who gets killed by the state? Now, obviously, I'm against this altogether, but we do have quite a few. We have women committing 10% of all murders. Who gets penalized with death by the state? 97% men, 3% women. What about college enrollment? 57, uh, round it up, 58% female, 42% male. Where's the male privilege? So, if I were to read, uh, and then let, let, let's, uh, I'm going to talk about the, the, the supposed gender pay gap in a moment, but these numbers, you know, most of them, they're, they're all from very recent studies. I'm not saying that these numbers were the same 10 years ago. They weren't. Um, specifically with the, with, the, with the pay gap, we, we're looking at the most recent numbers, which I'm about to get into. So I'm not saying that there were never problems to be solved. There certainly were. And obviously, if you go back, I mean, there was a time in this country women couldn't even vote. So obviously there's uh, there's there's quite a bit of history with real issues where women were clearly not given the, the the same rights as men and you don't have to go back that far you can go back to the 1950s it was a disaster a lot of good was done in the 60s and 70s but it gets to a point where when when you look at these things when have you actually solved the problem When do these programs, particularly the ones that are enforced by the state, when are they no longer needed? I guess the, the question is, you know, is the problem solvable? And if it is solved, then do you walk away? Or scale back at least? You will never find somebody in the business of doing this for a living to ever agree that there is a time when a problem could possibly be solved. You know, this is something that perhaps people who are vapors can understand even better than, than normal people because we know a lot more about how the pharmaceutical industry and the so-called public health advocates like American Heart, American Cancer, American Lung, Tobacco-Free Kids, et cetera, et cetera, how they operate. And what you guys probably understand a lot more than regular people because you do know about this conspiracy and you do know that it's a real thing. It's not a theory, it's happening. And it's the people who offer solutions to problems don't necessarily want to end the problem. I mean, if you look at pharma, it's pretty obvious. Does Pfizer or whoever makes nicotine, you know, whoever makes the patch, the gum, the lozenge, all of the, you know, the FDA approved at least, Nicotine replacement, uh, nicotine replacement therapies. Do they want to end cigarette smoking? Of course they don't. People wouldn't buy their products. Let's say they had a, a brilliant scientist who worked for them who said, I actually have a drug where if we were able to get this to market, that no one who took this, uh, let's say it's just a pill, you took it and you would never want to smoke again for the rest of your life. It's like a, like a tobacco vaccine. Let's just pretend, right? And let's say he worked for, you know, whoever makes the patch. Do you think that they would want to market that drug? Of course not. They're making billions of dollars a year 
from patch gum lozenge chantix if there were no smokers they couldn't if it was really something like that that could work they would have no interest in pursuing getting that drug to market or that vaccine to market they'd lose all their nrt sales what about companies that make radiation and chemotherapy treatments for cancer would they be actively pursuing an actual cure for cancer much like we have one you know for you know whatever any other diseases that we've conquered of course not this would completely erode into their profits they wouldn't want that that's not to say that another company wouldn't want to do something like that but the ones who are selling a treatment doesn't necessarily want to sell a cure what if there was a company who paved roads and they had some uh, engineer who said i've come up with this new paving surface it costs the same as asphalt, but the road can go 50 years without being prepared. Do you think that a company that paves roads would want to sell this product? Of course not. Offering treatments and solutions does not mean you want to offer a cure. And this, I think, is at the crux of not just modern feminism I think you see it a lot in all kinds of other social movements the product that they're selling isn't a cure they don't want a cure I mean look at this I, I have I have I can back up every one of those and, and let's 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 go forwards a little bit more into the this this gender gap this pay gap that supposedly exists you'll see um, quoted very often, People will say that for every dollar that a man earns in the workplace, a woman earns 77 cents on the dollar. So that's a pretty huge double-digit number, right? Now, it stands to reason that now how could that happen in this day and age? Companies, especially publicly traded ones, they're not, they don't, they care about the bottom line. They have a board of directors. They have stockholders. If this was really the case, that men were being paid that much more for the same work and the same performance, well, if I was the CEO and those numbers were really true, I would say, well, we're not hiring any more men. We're only hiring women now because now we can hire, we can hire these people and we can get so much more productivity for less money. Why hire any men? at that point, right? Well, it turns out the number is is a myth. It doesn't exist at all. There is a, here, let me link you to the study. Okay. Um, this is a study done. God, I have a lot of links for you guys today. This is a study that was done by Wendy M. Williams and Stephen J. CC, they looked at this supposed gender pay gap, and what they found was exactly the opposite, that there, there is a, a pay gap, but it's actually uh, in the opposite direction. The problem is that when you do look at these numbers that do in, in, indeed say, if you look at all men in the workforce and all women in the workforce, and you just look at how much money they are getting paid, you will indeed find 
that women get paid 77 cents on the dollar for every men. But what it's not doing is it is not taking into account the decisions that people make once they enter the workforce. For example, many women who enter the workforce in their early 20s, by the time they get to their late 20s or early 30s, decide that they want to raise a family. This may entail either uh, temporarily dropping out of the workforce or doing part-time work. Certainly, if they are still full-time, they're certainly not interested in staying at the office until 9 o'clock at night. So what happens? Men who are willing to make those sacrifices and who are they're willing to work the long hours, they're willing to do all this. Of course, for a company, there is much more value in someone who is willing to work more. So do they get the promotions? Of course, they're putting in more labor. It stands to reason that they're going to be, um, that they're going to move up the ladder much more. This is not based on some sort of patriarchy. This is the choices that both the men and the women have made, namely towards family. Making money is simply more important to men than women, even when you're talking about a single woman who is not a mother. If you look at those numbers, they are much less inclined to work more. They value more vacation time. And this is a voluntary choice. This is not a blanket statement. This is not, not all women are like this. Some women do indeed want to work late, put in the extra hours, come in on a set, whatever it is. And some of those women you will see at the top of companies. But in general, it's simply not a choice that most women want to make. So what happens when you look at these choices and how it affects how much men and women are paid? When you look at the STEM fields, which are science, technology, engineering, and math, this study by Ms. Williams and Mr. Cece looked at applicants to STEM cell fields. Again, science, technology, engineering, and math. When they put in fake applications with identical academic stats for men and women, females were preferred two to one over men. The only field that was an exception was in economics and only when it was the person deciding on who was to be hired was a male. So only male economists showed no preference between identical applicants. You know what I'm saying? They got the same SAT scores, the same, all you know, all the, um, the objective testing, the GPA, all that stuff. Male economists didn't care. Everyone else did and preferred females two to one. And what you see, and uh, th that's just in the STEM fields, but when you, uh, uh, when you just look at, hiring men and women coming directly out of college, you see there is a gender uh, pay gap and it is in favor of women, not by much, uh, but about 5%, women will make about 5% right out of college than men. So there is, I don't think it's a huge issue, there, but there is certainly a gender pay gap, but the fact of the matter is it favors women and not men. We can go into other areas. Domestic violence, a study done by Martin Fiber concluded that women are as likely or more likely to initiate violence in domestic disputes. Women have plentiful resources, and this is a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, women who do suffer domestic disputes uh, and domestic abuse, which is a big issue. It is important that they have a place to get help. Uh, the problem is that men cannot. 
these centers simply uh, do not exist or the amount of them are uh, finding them is almost impossible uh, in some in some areas they simply just don't exist it's almost impossible for a man to get help when a poli- uh, when the police are called um, for domestic violence uh, if a man calls the police because a woman has abused them he is three to three times more likely to be arrested than a woman this is how the police are trained what about disease? Um, breast cancer and prostate cancer are pretty useful to look at because they affect almost the same amount of men or same percentage of men as they do women. It's almost identical in terms of uh, new cases and mortality numbers. Um, the federal funding for breast cancer is $891 million a year. For prostate cancer, $399 million. What if you look at the private sector? The American Cancer Society allocates two times as much money for breast cancer as prostate cancer when they full and well know that it's affecting the exact same number of people on both sides. Where's the male privilege? I'm trying to find it. I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about this concept that you've probably seen at this point. It's it's something that's uh, that is making headlines, that is making news. The concept of rape culture. Um, modern feminism posits that in uh, certainly in the United States, and they would make the same argument for other uh, Western or Westernized countries that the United States is a place where there is a rape culture. Um, now, when you think about this, just without looking first at, at any numbers, I mean, do you, uh, what evidence do you really see for this? Um, men who are rapists, they're not given any kind of a free pass. They're thrown in jail. Um, you make a rape joke at the office, you're likely to be fired. Um, I, I don't really see any evidence that there really is this this rape culture. I think in this country, rapists are thought of as really bad people, and they and who wouldn't who wouldn't agree that they go they should go to jail and they do. But they have this concept that they are pushing this concept that there is this rape culture in America. Now, maybe they're right. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But wouldn't you say? When you look at this country and how rapists are dealt with versus, well, gosh, I could pick one of a dozen countries. What do they all have in common? They're Islamic states. I think it's undeniable that those countries absolutely have a rape culture. They have a culture where rape is permitted, where if a woman even reports a rape, she is, a, she is also guilty of a crime immediately. And will be given some kind of a horrific uh, punishment. The male, maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, the, the the fact of the matter is, there are many, many areas all across the world where there are child brides, there is genital mutilation, where women are property by law. So there is rape culture and far worse all over the world. Wouldn't you think 
that modern feminists in this country, with this platform that they have to speak out and attack these sorts of issues, would be talking about that. But they don't. Never. In fact, when you see these protests against free speech on campus, whether it be um, the ability to have somebody talk about a men's rights issue or um, talking about drawing Muhammad or something like that, um, they support each other. Um, the Islamists and the feminists are on the same side, at least in this country. Um, good luck. <laughs> good luck going to an Islamic country with a pierced nose and blue hair. Um, I, I don't recommend it. I don't think it's going to turn out well for you. But the, 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 the point is, is that even if it is as bad as you say it is, as bad as they say it is in this country, why won't you talk about the horrible atrocities that are proven to take place daily on a mass scale in Islamic countries? Why do modern feminists never, ever talk about it? I don't really know the answer. Uh, I, I, I can speculate. You'd have to ask them, but they won't answer you. Here is, uh, so one of the ways that modern feminists, they uh, are, I guess, um, try to fight back against this rape culture that they say is so prevalent on college campuses, they have these things like uh, called slut walks. So um, one of the things I found, by the way, just as a side note before I begin this section of the, of the uh, episode, is that when I was looking for critiques for the critiques on modern feminism, I wasn't really looking for articles written by men or women. I was just looking for good articles. Interesting thing that I found is that I found many, many more articles written against modern feminism that were written by women rather than men, uh, by like a nine-to-one ratio. And I, wasn't look I, I was just looking for good articles. They're almost all written by women. Um, that is to say that most women want nothing to do with this. They do not want to be treated as victims. They do not want to be infantilized. They do not want to be treated like these precious snowflakes that can not be subject to any kind of criticism or any kind of speech that they just say is objectionable or offensive. They want nothing to do with this, and for good reason. Who would want to be treated that way? Who would want their children to be subjected to that, to be grown up that way? No, most women are rational. They want to be treated equally. They want to be treated on the base of their merits. Most women don't want special privilege. Sadly, you don't hear from them often. Anyway, one of these women is that, I guess you are, well, maybe you are hearing from, from them uh, more and more every day. This is, um, this was done at a, a slut work, uh, d this woman named Lauren Southern, uh, who's like a libertarian type activist, um, She's really cool. Uh, she went to a slut walk and protested and said, we don't have a rape culture here. If you, and was speaking out and saying, if you want to see a rape culture, you know, go to Africa or go to the Middle East. You know, that, I'll show you plenty of rape culture over there. Why aren't we talking about it? So she did interviews 
uh, beforehand, before she, you know, took out her sign. So, you know, people seeing her as, you know, as a, as a woman just, I guess, assumed and, and gave interviews uh, to her. And this is once they figured out that she was not a feminist, they started, uh, they confronted her. This is, uh, this is what happened. And it's, it's pretty funny, actually. Listen to this. There's a group of women that were here and they're wishing to withdraw. Okay, so that's not Lauren. That's uh, one of the uh, feminist protesters who were there at the slut walk said, was basically coming up to her and said, you know, saying, you interviewed some people and uh, we didn't realize who you were, who you are. So this is what they had to say. Group of women that were here and they're wishing to withdraw consent to use the footage that you had, I guess, gotten. So. Can you please make sure that is done and make sure that any of the stuff that they have... We may or we may not use the footage. It is a public area, so we do have legal rights to use the footage. But you, like, interviewed them specifically, right? So, like... Yes, and they gave us consent to interview them. Well, now they're withdrawing it, so... That's not how it works, but... Which is interesting, given the event that you're at, right? Like, that's a little bit contradictory. I mean, it's a little bit contradictory. Well, if you're I totally say it, that's not how it works. <laughs> well, you can't just withdraw consent the next, like... Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Why is that interesting? It's just, I don't know. No, 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 tell, tell me, like, tell me why. Like a rally for, like, like rapists, uh, like, you know, consent and, like, withdrawing consent, saying, like, no means no. They're saying no, and you're saying that, like... Okay, so if someone gives consent the night before, and then they have... No, 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 listen, if they have sex with a man and they give consent to him, then the next day decide, oh, I regret it. I'm going to report him for being a rapist, even though I gave him consent. You're saying that's okay? Okay. So you're you're sounding a little bit like a twelve year old because this is irrelevant. It's it's uh it's unbelievable. Um, and this is uh, this is something that modern feminism ten they're saying regret is the same as withdrawing consent. So if if a woman does consent to sex one night and the next morning regrets it, they can. I don't know. I guess they. I, I don't know if this involves a time machine or something. They can just withdraw consent, and it becomes rape. Does anyone want to live in that world? You could. You see how disastrous that could be. And we have this. We have actual. You know, we have college campuses, of course, adopting this uh, ridiculous view of consent, where there, there is only consent if yes means yes. Saying, I mean, I mean, I. I I mean, the way I deal with that, I guess, is I just say, uh, I'm going to get a condom. <laughs> and, you know, if, if she says no, then okay, that's pretty clear. But I, I, I don't, I don't think, I, I mean, that there has to be, yes, and there cannot be any level of alcohol drinking involved in this. I mean, or shit, man, boy, would my college be pretty, my college life would have been pretty different. I mean, is there something wrong with that? Is there something wrong with going out, having a few drinks, hooking up, and having sex? Is there is that rape? According to them, yes. Uh, I, I meant to play this before, so I'll play it now. Um, this is, uh, once again, this is uh, Camille Paglia. Uh, she did an interview with Reason TV. Uh I will link to the full interview. Here is a snippet. It's an hour-long interview, and I highly recommend it. Here's just a couple of minutes from it. 
define what it, for you what is the essence of feminism? Is it using the lens of gender to explore every given issue, or is it a set of political positions that can't change? Well, my view, okay, I am an equal opportunity feminist. Okay, mm -hmm. I believe that all barriers to women's advance in the social and political realm must be removed. However, I do not feel that gender, okay, is is sufficient to explain all of human life. Okay, uh, this 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 uh, the gender myopia, the gender monomania, okay, mm -hmm. has become a disease. It's become a substitute for a religion. Okay, it's become, it's become a whole cosmic view that. It, it is impossible, okay, that, that feminist, the feminist agenda can ever be the total explanation for human life. This is our problem now, okay, is that is this, this, this monomania, the, the identity politics so, of the 1970s. Yeah. So people see everything through the, through the lens of race or gender or social class. Or class this is a yeah. madness, an absolute madness. And in fact, it's a distortion and, of the 60s, okay, an absolute and, distortion. And, and you're not saying that those things, race, class, and gender, which is kind of the holy trilogy or holy trinity, of, of contemporary cultural studies, uh, but all of those things are important and they all intersect Very in many ways. But mm -hmm. you're you're Very essentially important. arguing that it's not a none of these are none of these explain things totally. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. These are techniques of social analysis I find very useful. I, that's, that's the way I teach. It's the way I write. And all these race, class, and gender, absolutely. Okay. So talk but, about. But the point is, they, these are they're, Marxism. Okay, mm -hmm. as I argue in the introduction to my last book, Glittering Images, is not a sufficient as a metaphysical system for explaining the cosmos, okay? It, it is very limited. Marxism sees only society. Mm -hmm. But we are much big, greater than that, okay? There's nature, there's eternity, there's, you know, there's more questions of mortality, which, which Catholic yeah. theology of the Middle Ages addressed far more profoundly than Marxism ever has. And of course, I mean, one of the uh, foundational texts, I guess, is it Second Wave Feminism, uh, The Dialectic of Sex by Shulamith Firestone. Mm -hmm literally just took a class out of the Marxist analysis and put in gender exactly. and then did the same thing. And exactly. so, that, so you're saying, I mean, there's some power in those moves, but they're limited. Yes, that's yeah. right. These are simply tools. They're yeah. tools, okay? But, but we, should have a, we should have a large toolbox, right. okay? And, Wait, is that, the and, is that the lesbian you're talking? That you want a, a large toolbox? <laughs> Okay. No, I, it, it's actually ex-Catholic. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm yes. an atheist. Yeah. Okay, but but there's no doubt that I, that I see things theologically, and I was I was profoundly yeah. influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism mm -hmm. when I was in college at this it's a Harper College, upstate yeah. New York. I, this, this, these ideas were everywhere. I feel that the '60s had a vision, a large cosmic perspective that was absolutely lost in this in this this degeneration. Okay, in this splintering of the 1970s what, in, in, what into these into these identity politics. Yeah. Uh, you what know, drove that? Was was it, um, you know, was it just that the revolution eats, it own, eats its own, or is it there was a shrinking economic pie, so people started, you know, grabbing for whatever they could before the Titanic went down? What, what explains my, my that, explanation. that kind of, uh, you know, narrowing of a cosmic vision into something more? My explanation, I, I actually wrote an entire essay, okay, about, about the religious vision of the, of the American 1960s, and this is a, it's an essay called, you know, Cults and Cosmic Consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I feel, okay, that the real visionary thinkers of my generation destroyed their brains on, on drugs, okay? I, I think LSD just leveled okay, all the truly talented people this, of my generation. I think this conversation is over. Okay. But, uh, you know, have to, no, I'm, okay. yeah. 
So you think, I mean, it was, who are the, who are the people who destroyed themselves on drugs? Uh, my, uh, my, my classmates, I mean, yeah. people, they, they, I think the authentic ima uh, imaginations, the, the mm -hmm. really innovative uh, people of my generation, right. the, the most daring, okay, of my, of my generation, took the drug. Now, I, for some reason, okay, felt that the LSD was untested, mm -hmm. and I did not want to experiment with it. And by, I was, but I was very interested in it. I was interested in all such vision quest, you know, right. things at the time. I went up with my fellow students to see Tim Timothy Leary speak mm -hmm. at Cornell. I saw him, and and, and it made me un, uneasy. There was a, he was the guru. There was like such a such a crowd around him. He was such a mag magnetic, but his face was already twitching. I, I could see. I, I said, I said, this is not going to end well, and it did not. Okay. Uh, I beg to differ with her on that particular substance, but um, definitely something that should be treated with caution. But here, uh, well, I don't. I don't know if, you, if she would consider herself a feminist, but this is a porn star. Her name is uh, Mercedes Carrera. She had a, uh, she didn't, it wasn't even friends with her, but there was a, a woman in the porn industry who she was talking about, and this is where we're going to pick it up in this conversation, in the, this interview. This woman was uh, gang raped and, uh, you know, serious, you know, seriously injured. It was a horrible, horrible assault. And she reached out to those leaders in, in the modern feminist movement for help. They were trying to raise money for her, for her medical bills and whatnot. Uh, she reached out to them, and this is what happened. What really bothers me, and this is my rant, what really fucking bothers me is that for the last two months, I have sat by in Gamergate and I have watched false faux victims utilize the world for their own personal and profit aims, claiming victimhood over emails and over comments on Twitter. And here you have a woman who's a real victim of a real rape and a real assault, and those same women who claim that they care about women's rights have done nothing. They have done jack fucking shit. And that pisses me off. And earlier I tweeted to Anita Sarkeesian and I said, can you help? Radio fucking silence. And you know what makes me mad? And this is why I am so pissed off at modern feminists. They claim to care about women, but when there are actually women in need, what do they do? Fucking radio silence. They don't give a shit about anybody but themselves. Anita Sarkeesian has made hundreds of thousands of dollars peddling her bullshit faux video, socially damaging crap. And it has been damaging for gender relations and it has been damaging for women. And I don't even want to hear about her victimhood because Cytheria, she's a real victim. A real victim of a random rape and assault. And you know, anybody who even dares insinuate that a sex worker doesn't deserve the same type of defense because, of, because they work in sex work can go fuck themselves. And that's what I have to say, and that's why I am so fucking livid right now. We've talked about ethics and journalism in Gamergate, and everyone said, that's bullshit, that's a cover for, for the abusive women. And you know what? I say, fuck you. 
It's, it's all the, the male gamers that are the misogynists and the damaging people in society. You know what? Fuck you. You want to do some actual reporting? Why don't you take a look at why these repeat offender juvenile delinquents are out of prison and able to break into people's homes? And guess what? It wasn't just Cytheria's home. They caught them because they did it again the next night. That's the fucking problem in this country. You want to talk about violence against women? Why aren't we looking at that? Why aren't we looking at gaps in the prison systems? Why aren't we looking at, 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 at all of these other societal issues? No, you know what? We're going to pick a group of benign people who enjoy uh, a gaming as a, as, a, as a hobby, and we're going to paint, and we're going to smear them and make them the horrible, horrible abusers of women. And it makes me so mad. I hate to admit that I've become a cynic. And I think it was George Carlin who said that inside of every cynic is a disappointed idealist. And I think that's true. Another feminist who is was excommunicated because her beliefs don't line up exactly with uh, the third wave that we have today screaming loudly from the ivory towers is Christina Hoff Summers. In the short clip, Miss Summers goes through uh, five feminist myths that refuse to die. Much of what we hear about the plight of American women is false. And some phony claims have been repeated so often, they're almost beyond the reach of critical analysis. Coming up next on The Factual Feminist, five feminist myths that will not die. Myth number one, women are half the world's population, working two-thirds of the world's working hours, receiving 10% of the world's income, and owning less than 1% of the world's property. Well, this faux fact is routinely quoted by advocacy groups, by the World Bank, Oxfam, the United Nations, but it's a fabrication. More than 15 years ago, two Sussex University experts on gender and development explained that the slogan was simply made up by somebody at the UN back in the 80s, and it just seemed sort of right to, the, to that person. <laughs> There's no evidence that it was ever accurate, and it's certainly not accurate today. In Africa, for example, Yale economist Cheryl Doss found that female land ownership ranged from 11% in Senegal to 54% in Rwanda and Burundi. Next myth. Between 100,000 and 300,000 girls are sold into slavery each year in the United States. Now this sensational claim is a favorite of celebrities, journalists, advocates, politicians, both conservative and liberal, by the way. The source for the figure is a 2001 report on child sexual exploitation. But that 100 to 300,000 figure referred to children at risk for exploitation, not actual victims. And as one of the authors made clear in an email exchange that he had with the Village Voice, the actual number of children abducted and pressed into sexual slavery is, quote, a few hundred. That's still a hundred too many, but they're not going to be helped by a thousandfold inflation of the number. Next myth. In the United States, 22 to 35 percent of women who visit emergency rooms do so because of domestic violence. Now this claim has appeared in countless fact sheets, books, articles, 
It's in the Penguin Atlas on Women. They use this emergency room figure to justify placing the United States on par with Uganda and Haiti for intimate violence. Well, what is the source? It seems that several feminist scholars misunderstood a 1997 study by the Justice Department. The correct figure is not 22 to 35 percent, but get ready, less than one half of one percent. Next myth. One in five college women will be sexually assaulted. Now this incendiary figure is everywhere in the media today. The one in five figure is based on a survey called the Campus Sexual Assault Study. But two prominent criminologists have noted fatal flaws. It had a very low response rate, a non-representative sample of respondents, and an overly broad definition of what counts as assault. I mean, it included such things as attempted forced kissing or intimate encounters while intoxicated. Now, defenders of the one in five figure will reply that the finding has been replicated by other studies. <laughs> but these studies suffer from the same sorts of flaws. Now, the best study that we have on sexual assault on campus suggests the figures are closer to one in 40, not one in four. One in 40 is still bad, but apparently not bad enough for the activists. And now for the mother of all feminist factoids. Women earn 77 cents for every dollar a man earns for doing the same work. Now, no matter how many times this wage gap claim is decisively refuted by economists, including feminist economists, it always comes back. The bottom line, the 23 cent gender pay gap is simply the difference between the average earnings of all men and women working full time. It doesn't take into account differences in occupation, positions, education, job tenure, hours worked per week. When such relevant factors are considered, the wage gap narrows to the point of vanishing. Now, wage gap activists will say, no, women with identical backgrounds and jobs as men, they still earn less. But they always fail to take into account critical variables. I mean, why play this game? Now, all of these reckless claims are nearly impossible to correct. Because armies of advocates, journalists, political leaders, they depend on killer stats to promote their cause. And I guess there's also an admirable human tendency to be protective of women. And stories of female exploitation are readily believed. But killer stats undermine good causes, and they send scarce resources in the wrong direction. My advice to women advocates, take back the truth. And if any of you have questions about anything I've said or would like to see... Great stuff. She's, um, yeah, tons of tons of YouTube videos. She's really, really good. Uh, still on the left, but not left enough for them, I suppose. Um, here's an ep excerpt from an article about Mattress Girl. If you're not, if you're not familiar with Mattress Girl, just Google that. There's tons of, uh, tons of news and articles about it. Basically a, a woman, her name is Emma Sulkowitz, alleged that she was raped by a male student at Columbia University in New York, and as uh, an art piece, she carried her mattress around with her for the remainder of the semester uh, up until graduation, where she actually carried it up on stage when she received her diploma. It was found afterwards to be, um, her allegations were completely false. Um, messages between her and her alleged rapist showed that uh, days after when she uh, alleged the actual rape took place, uh, she was actually over uh, Facebook Messenger begging him to give her anal sex.
Um, as far as I know, when a woman is raped and several days pass, uh, it is uh, not very likely that she is going to be begging the man who just raped her to fuck her up the ass. That is what happened. So, um, uh, Camille uh, Paglia commented on this art project. She did, I don't know if she was uh, aware at the time about the facts that came out that showed that this was a, a, a made-up claim. But here's what the interviewer asked uh, Palia about Emma Solkowitz. If Solkowitz was a student of yours in an art class you were teaching, how would you grade her work? That is the mattress uh, performance art that she did. I'd give her a D. I call it mattress feminism. Perpetually lugging around your bad memories, never evolving or moving on. It's like a parody of the worst aspects of that kind of grievance-oriented feminism. I called my feminism Amazon feminism or street smart feminism, where you remain vigilant, learn how to defend yourself, and take responsibility for the choices that you make. If something bad happens, you learn from it. You become stronger and move on. But hauling a mattress around on campus? Columbia, one of the great Ivy League schools with a tremendous history of scholarship, utterly disgraced itself in how it handled that case. It enabled this protrastic, masochistic exercise where a young woman trapped herself in her own bad memories and publicly labeled herself as a victim, which now they will identify her forever. This isn't feminism, which should empower women, not cripple them. It's yet more evidence of the current absence of psychology. To go around exhibiting and foregrounding your wounds is a classic neurotic symptom. But people are so lacking now in how basic Freudian consciousness in basic Freudian consciousness, because Freud got thrown out of mainstream feminism by Kate Millett and Gloria Steinem and company. So no one sees the pathology in all of this. And for Columbia to permit this girl to carry her mattress on stage and disrupt the com commencement ceremony was absolutely ludicrous. It demonstrates the total degradation of once eminent and admirable educational institutions to caretaking nursery schools. I prophesied, I prophesied this in a piece I wrote in 1992 for the Times, literary sup the Times Literary Supplement called The Nursery School Campus. At the time, nobody understood what I was saying, but I was arguing that the obsessive focus by American academia and students' emotional well-being was not what European universities have ever con been concerned with. European universities don't have this consumer-oriented view that they have to make their students enjoy themselves and feel good about themselves with everything driven by self-esteem. Now we have people emerging with Ivy League degrees who have no idea how little they know about history or literature. Their minds are shockingly untrained. They've been treated as fragile emotional beings throughout their schooling. The situation is worsening year by year as teachers have to watch what they say and give trigger warnings because God forbid that American students should have to conf confront the brutal realities of human life. Meanwhile, while all of this nursery school enabling is going on, we have the entire world veering towards ISIS with barbaric decap decapitations and gay guys being thrown off roofs and stoned to death. All the harsh realities of human history are erupting, and this young generation is going to be utterly unprepared to deal with it. The nation is eventually going to be endangered by the inability of several generations of young people to make political decisions about a real world that they do not understand. The primitive realities of human life 
are exploding out there. And here is a link to that article if you want to read it in full. Um, there is another clip. I, I neglected to pull this. This was at Yale. So let me do a quick search for Yale Halloween uh, protest and see if the video comes up. So basically, uh, there was an email sent out. There was like an email sent out from the university cautioning students not to have uh, culturally a prohibitive uh, costumes, meaning, you know, don't dress up as a Mexican guy in a sombrero. Uh, don't dress up as a ninja. Uh, you know, don't dress up as a Native American. All those things are not acceptable Halloween costumes. Another administrator, uh, you know, sent out an email saying, you know, I think we're, de we're dealing with adults here. Everyone here at Yale who is a student is an adult. And I think it's appropriate to kind of let them decide what they want to do and make the right decisions for themselves. There was an eruption. Remember, we're talking about Halloween costumes here. Hopefully this is the, this is a good one. This is a good link, hopefully. The exception is because other people have right It's not about creating an intellectual space. It's about creating a safe home for us here. That's what college is? You should be at the event last night when you hear a Franco say that she didn't know how to create a safe space for her freshman in Tillman. How do you explain that? These freshmen come here and they think this is what Yale is? Do you hear that? They're gonna leave, they're gonna transfer because you are a poor steward of the community. You should not sleep at night. We're out, we out. We you go. are disgusting. This is about Halloween costumes. An email sent out that he didn't even write. Yale. This is Yale. Gosh, I could keep going here. Should I? Yeah. Uh, oh, this is... I'm no fan of... Uh, not a fan of Fox News. Not really a fan of uh, Megan Kelly. But Christina Hoff Summers did come on for an interview with her. And I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Another report tonight from an American college campus where some students want to silence a speaker they don't happen to agree with. 
Students at a public university in Texas are petitioning against their own governor, Greg Abbott, as their graduation speaker because they say, well, he's just not diverse enough and, quote, does not align the spirit of the University of North Texas. In just the last two, last week, I should say, two other colleges were at the center of controversy after students protested a conservative author who had been invited to speak about sexual assault. Students complained that her mere presence was so offensive they needed to post trigger warnings on campus so people could get prepared to deal with their upset. Joining me now, warning, here she comes, that author, Christina Hoff Summers, who is an outspoken feminist and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Great to see you, Christina. Oh, nice they, don't, they don't let you have that label feminist because you're not the kind of feminist they believe in and you don't right. say the stuff they want you to say and therefore they want you to shut your mouth and if you don't shut your mouth then everyone needs to be held before you come on the campus and told that they can go to their safe space if you yes, have the nerve have to show up. They have safe rooms where they go with some, and Brown University for example they have Play-Doh and bubbles and tape recordings of puppy dogs. It's so infantilizing. It's so shocking to me as a philosophy professor that free speech, free expression, I mean, the campuses have become a hostile environment for free expression. As I understand it, when you were going to Georgetown University to speak, they, they had to create a safe zone for people who are so overwhelmed by your presence there. It was like, I can't, and, I can't even, and they I have wanted, to go to, and, and in the meantime, you had been receiving so many threats for your mere appearance, they had to give you a security guard to maintain your actual physical safety. I don't know that there were threats, but the tone of the criticism in, on Facebook postings and other uh, places uh, alarmed the campus authorities. So they thought perhaps I needed protection from the safe spacers. Did they give you a little Play-Doh? I mean, we're like, <laughs> could you walk around? I sort of, I, I will say at Oberlin, I wouldn't have minded going to their safe room because it was so intense. I walk into the hall and it's filled. They had kept changing the room because there were greater numbers of people wanted to come to protest me being on campus. And the room was filled with people with posters and placards and uh, it's like, Christina, we, it is like we are ruining the upcoming generation. Life doesn't involve only people who think the way you think, college students. You have to kind of get used to people with opposing views. Exactly. And, you know, it used to be people would come and debate me or they wouldn't like my views. Now they say I pose a threat to their safety. And I am a moderate liberal feminist. There, there is nothing incendiary about my views. That's what's also shocking. Is you don't buy the full dogma about things like the numbers about sexual assaults on campus. Neither does Brit Hume. Neither do a lot of people who aren't t sexist or misogynist. Neither do a lot of, of campus feminists who speak out against it. But as one professor did at Northwestern, Laura Kipnis, she spoke out against this sort of rape culture rhetoric and the trigger warnings in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Well, her article triggered students and they're demanding that she be sanctioned and it's it's very bad. It's a real you know, threat I, to, to freedom. Yeah, I, 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 end freedom this of speech. I end this segment with the, with the profound words of my old trainer, Dave, back in the day when I still worked out. Toughen up, buttercup. That's what those college <laughs> students need to be told. Christina, good to see you. Thank you. I would say again, like, my one comfort is that my children someday are going to be competing against these people. And, and I will have thrown them into the deep end and they will have learned how to swim. That's what we need to be doing. What I'm going to uh, finish this uh, conversation with, diatribe, is uh, partially for 
Well, partially for good, you know, some good reporting and also some excellent entertainment. Um, like I said, most of my most of my clips and most of the the sources I've used tonight were um, either feminist speakers who disagree with uh, the third wave of feminism or, or studies that were published uh, by women. I just found it so easy to find them. Uh, there is one outspoken critic of feminism who is fucking hilarious, and I highly recommend. His name is Milo Yiannopoulos. I, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. His Twitter is at Nero, N-E-R-O. I highly recommend that you check it, if, if not for learning about this sort of thing, certainly for, for the, uh, the, the comedy that he provides. He is unique in those who are outspokenly critical of third wave feminism in that he is a gay man and he's not just a little gay. Uh, he is in some of the words that he would use. Uh, he is flamboyantly gay. He, he is, um, he is fabulously gay. He is, he, he's very, very gay and, um, hilarious and fabulous. And he uses much, many more explicit words to describe his social life. Um, he's uh he's funny he's a funny guy and it's interesting in that he is allowed to as it's many men if they're certainly if they're uh white heterosexual men are really not allowed to make these critiques but because he is part of a protective protected class being very flamboyantly gay he gets a pass and it's interesting because that pass was created by the movement that he's criticizing. And he knows it. And he says it outright. He said, I'm a flamboyantly gay man. I can get away with anything. And he does. He has been one of the most critical, uh, outspoken critics of, gamer of Gamergate, of, of feminism in general. Um, he's, really, he's really something. I do not agree with him on a lot of things. I certainly don't agree with him on religion. He's... Uh, well, he says he's Roman Catholic and certainly defends, and I have no love for that religion whatsoever. I disagree with him on atheism. Uh, he's not very uh, fond of libertarians. He is much more so a conservative than a libertarian. Um, but his contributions to the subject have been immense just because of the amount of press he can say that he gets saying outrageous things that other white men are simply not allowed to say. Um, check him out on Twitter um, while they're still allowing him to have an account. Um, they recently, uh, because of something that he did, they actually removed his verification, which what an odd thing to do, right? Uh, verification on Twitter is like if you're a public figure or you are like a, a reporter or whatever, someone who is prone to people making parody accounts of you, um, Twitter gives you a blue check mark next to your name so that for, in his example, he's Milo Yiannopoulos, he had a blue check mark that said, this is the legitimate real Milo. Um, Twitter removed that from him. And what an odd punishment uh, because he did something they didn't like. To remove, it's, they didn't remove his ability to tweet. They just removed his ability to show people that he is the real Milo Yiannopoulos. That doesn't make any sense because you have 
thousands of fake Milo accounts, and now they're saying things and actually getting to getting quoted in quote unquote reputable uh, reputable news news sites. What an interesting punishment. Um, but anyway, while he's still on Twitter, while he's still allowed to be on Twitter, I recommend him. Um, <laughs> hilarious guy. Uh, and frankly, a lot of what I, uh, a lot of what I've learned ab about has come from his investigative journalism. He's also extremely critical of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, that is something that is seemingly completely separate from uh, third wave feminism, but it's really not. Um, you guys know I have been following and reporting on police abuse uh, far longer than it has been more recently newsworthy. And I thought that even though the you know the the Michael Brown the Michael Brown incident, which I would have never reported on uh, because it didn't pass my litmus test for a clear case of police abuse, but that was the one thing that the media did finally seize upon and, uh, you know, brought the discourse to a national level. Um, and that's kind of where this whole Black Lives Matter thing came out of. And this problem, which is real um, and on the level of being an ep epidemic in my, uh, police abuse in, in, in my, my belief, in, in my opinion, has been so hurt by this matter, a problem that legitimately exists has not has not been advanced by this Black Lives Matter movement. It has been degraded and hurt much in the same way that any real issues that do exist in uh, uh, with women and being oppressed and being being hurt. Which, as I've said, you know there are thousands of incidents every day. It's just that most of them are in Islamic countries. Um, they those women have not been hurt have not been helped in fact have by some policy of moral ab abdication of the issue those women have been hurt by feminism just in the way that po that people who are suffering from police abuse have been hurt by black lives matter he's done expen extensive reporting on it and i highly recommend you uh you read it he does work and write for uh, Breitbart, so you can find a lot of his stuff there.